you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. It has been a uh, rich season of celebration. It seems like every weekend has had some sort of celebration for the last couple weeks with Christmas Eve and New Year's um, Eve. And, um, and then last night, many of you celebrated Epiphany parties. Who, who said, who did Epiphany parties? Weren't they great? It was very, very good. So a rich season of celebration. Um, you may come to each end of each weekend being like, I just need to eat a salad. I don't need to eat things, very rich foods. Um, enough feasting. Um, but we did. We have had some good um, times of celebration, especially celebrations as a church. Um, on Christmas Eve, Father Chris very poignantly preached about the shepherds, um, how the evening and the coming of the angels was their last uh, day of waiting, their first day of seeing. How the shepherds were waiting for the salvation of Israel, um, that in the midst of darkness, uh, political and religious and economic darkness, um, Christ came, um, that the, the hopes uh, that they had, had um, yearned for, uh, that the Lord and the light was coming into the world. And so it was their first night then of seeing, of going with haste to where they found Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And they, um, their lives were transformed in that moment, in that first evening. And we've had other examples of Epiphany, again, as we celebrated within our Epiphany parties, how Jesus, the King of the Jews, was revealed by a star and was worshipped by Gentiles from far away in the East. And we tried to mark that time um, by uh, kind of having who will arrive at my house um, in, in those feast times. And again, it's a very celebratory time, but I think also very theologically rich for us. This season after Epiphany is a very um, theologically rich time and particularly a Christologically rich time. Now, Christological is a big word, um, but I think an important word. It means, again, words about the Messiah or, you know, theology around who was Jesus. And appropriately in our communion prayers for the next several weeks, um, we have a prayer that is added um, in which we say, Lord, guide us in thanks and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory that he might bring us out of darkness and into his own glorious light. Again, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory, that he might bring us out of darkness and into his own glorious light. What, is, what exactly is glory, though? I grew up in a church tradition where there was lots and lots of emphasis on glory, but at least for me as a kid, it was kind of abstracted. But I think we think of glory, it's a person's reputation, it can be radiance of uh, something, something that is glorious. Um, and then ultimately there's divine glory and eternal glory that is very different from, again, mortal glory, just radiance of things that we might see within the world. The glory of people or the glor glory of mortal flesh um, is one in which we seek to earn it. People earn glory, they earn recognition. You might earn accolades in science or technology and athletic achievement. And those who have the glory of this world are rewarded richly with money, with fame, attention. And the glory of an artist or an athlete or other public figures, it, it can be something quite admirable. 
Um, but it is something that rises um, and falls with his or her reputation or his or her abilities or skills. Um, Time Magazine has published a Person of the Year issue in December, kind of at the end of a calendar year, for 97 years, identifying different people who had some measure of glory, some measure of great reputation. Oh, yeah, that was a good uh, pun. Because who knows who um, 2023's Person of the Year was? Who wants to shout it out? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift, yes. Um, and one of, well, actually one of the interesting moments of my, uh, my Christmas season is we, during 12 days of Christmas, we have an envelope with our kids for each day and different things that we do. And one of, I can't remember what day, but it was to watch the Eras Tour video. Who's seen that? Maybe? Okay. If you're ashamed, you can put like a low hand. <laughs> um, but I really, it really was, it was astonishing. It was astonishing. Um, Watching um, Taylor Swift perform for three hours um, and the, the production value and all the different, I mean, it, was just, it really was incredible um, and so impressive. I'm not saying if, that you should spend your money to watch it, but it was impressive in our household. It gave me greater appreciation for Taylor Swift. But what she has, the glory that has made her Times Person of the Year, is mortal glory. As impressive as her um, fleshly achievements might be, um, those achievements are also temporal. And at the end, I was like, what's next for her? You know, what, what, what can you do that's next? Because she possesses this glory in the prime of life, but the prime of life doesn't last forever. There's different things that fade. And the glory that people give to us is ultimately um, fragile. And I, I remember reading some things over the last couple of weeks of um, celebrities whose stars have sort of fallen, um, you know, kind of like, where are they now? Um, and it's just an example. The glory of people is, is, it can be fickle. The glory that people give is fickle. But in contrast, we have divine glory, the divine glory that belongs to God and God alone, divine glory that doesn't fade. Isaiah 42, um, which we read today, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. That God is praiseworthy, that God is beautiful, that his, his, he is glorious, that there is a radiance of his glory from all of his divine attributes. That glory eternally emanates from him. And it's not just aesthetic glory, but powerful glory, like effective, that it, it causes fear and trembling. Kind of like, don't stare at the sun. The sun, light comes from the sun, but don't, st don't stare at it. It is, it is fearsome. And so there's examples throughout Scripture, like the holy ground surrounding the burning bush when God spoke with Moses. Like Uzzah, who was struck dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. It, it's a funny verse or passage in Second Samuel 6 where it seems like this person seemed well-intentioned and yet he's struck dead for daring to touch the Ark of the Covenant and that symbol of God's presence with his people. Or Saul's blinding encounter with God on the road to Damascus. That again, the glory of God is, is not just aesthetic, but it is powerful and effective. And it is, it is fearful, and it's a fearful thing. But then we have um, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, which is again the reflection of this epiphany season. The glory of God in Jesus Christ isn't dependent on the recognition of others. That Jesus possessed it from the womb as there was a response from Elizabeth and even John the Baptist in the womb. That as an infant, um, angels proclaimed his coming. 
An infant can't command that attention or draw others to himself in the ways that those were drawn to Jesus. Later, as a boy in the temple, he impressed um, learned people with his understanding of God's word. But his glory, even though it was displayed, many saw him but didn't actually recognize or acknowledge his glory. As John the Evangelist proclaimed, um, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this reading from our Christmas um, services, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like our reading from today from Mark, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he, Jesus, has made him known. The pastor and theologian um, Fleming Rutledge describes Epiphany as a season of glory, a, a season with emphasis upon the glory of God in Christ Jesus. It's a season of reflection upon how Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, shows us and reveals God himself. It's a season of aha moments, um, which our church has talked, that Epiphany is an aha, a manifestation, a revelation moment. And it comes throughout um, our Sunday readings up from now until Lent. Manifestation of God's glory through the star as we celebrated on Epiphany yesterday. Manifestation of the glory of God in the Trinity at Jesus' baptism as we've read um, today. And then demonstrations of God's glory through healing and signs and victory over the devil and over demons. And then finally, coming to the end of the Epiphany season through the Transfiguration, in which again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present, and as a veil is sort of pulled, we see a greater vision of Jesus' glory. So do you want to see God's glory, even that fearsome glory? Then we must look to Jesus. He has made God known. In today's reading from Mark, God revealed um, himself through Jesus' baptism in a very particular way. John the, baptism, or John the Baptist, a man of the wilderness, had been preparing the way, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And John was very clear that he was not the Messiah, but he came to bear witness about Jesus and saying that this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, while Matthew and Luke uh, begin their Gospels with um, nativity narratives, uh, with um, stories of Jesus' birth and childhood, and John begins with declaration of the incarnate word, the very first thing, the very first epiphany that Mark describes in his Gospel is this, the baptism of Jesus at the very beginning. That Jesus' baptism was its own kind of rending of the heavens and an epiphany of God's glory. And it's important where it happened and who performed the baptism and then what happened next. The Jordan River was not just any body of water. It was a site of promise. It was a site where Joshua and the Israelites had crossed over into the promised land at the end of the Exodus where Joshua had taken on the mantle from Moses. Like the miracle at the Red Sea, God had divided the waters of the Jordan so that the Israelites could cross over on dry ground. 
And at the Jordan, God showed that he was with Joshua as he led the Israelites into the promised land, just as God had been with Moses in the wilderness. Now God was with Joshua entering into the land, leading them out of the wilderness. And John's baptism was an act of repentance for all that had transpired since the, um, the Jews had entered into the promised land. It was like, let's go to the place where things seem to have gone sideways in a, in, a, in a way. That though God had driven out their enemies and established them in the land, the people had turned from God's promises. That they'd worshipped the idols of their enemies. They'd spurned God's covenant with them. And now they were ruled not by David's ancestors, as, as our psalm proclaims and prophesies, but by Gentiles and by collaborators like King Herod. And so now there's just beautiful poetic things within this. Um, after his baptism, Jesus, whose name in Hebrew is the same as Joshua, would be a new Joshua to overthrow the occupiers, overthrow the principalities and powers, and lead God's people into the promised land. As Jesus identified with this rescue and this salvation and the repentance of God's people, his baptism was the launch of his ministry as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And though Jesus himself had no personal guilt or any sin, he identified with and took on the sins of God's people, like a great high priest might in in offering sacrifices. As a great high priest of God's people, Jesus could actually affect the repentance and renewal that John's baptism symbolized and that the, the priestly sacrifice had always seeked, sought to sacrifice. As Peter taught in today's reading from Acts, God himself anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power that John baptized with water, but God anointed Jesus with the word of the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that in that moment, Uh, sort of a pulling back of the veil, Jesus' baptism was a revelation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the Trinity whom we adore. Now Jesus did not seek um, the, the validation or the glory of mortal flesh. He didn't announce himself. He didn't solicit the praise of others. He did not cry aloud or raise his voice or make it heard in the street, as it says in Isaiah. Instead, the Father and the Holy Spirit made him known. The heavens themselves were torn open. The Spirit descended and God himself said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Saying this again at the beginning of his ministry rather than just at the end. It is fitting um, then that on this, um, this Sunday, this um, first Sunday after Epiphany, that we celebrate the sacrament of baptism at the start of this, this season. For through the waters of baptism, God himself brings us out of darkness and into his glorious light. And it's the beginning of of ministry. It's the beginning of walking as his disciples ourselves. That just as Jesus began his ministry by identifying with mortal flesh, we are initiated into his body through identity with his death and resurrection, buried with him and raised with him to new life. Jesus took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory. Again, took it on, but then did not seek to build up his glory by fleshly ways, but taking on our weakness and our frailty, not taking on a path of fame and fortune and power, that he sought us in our darkness, sought us in our shadow of death and sin, the places where people are groaning and waiting for the coming of the Messiah, and brought us out into his own glorious light. 
And as Paul wrote to the Philippians, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in our mortal flesh, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbling himself, becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. Because there are many things that we can have um, glory in in this world, fame um, and fortune, um, times in which there's sort of a prime of life that we might be seeking. But the, the cross, the, the paradox, that the cross was the ultimate manifestation of Jesus' glory in mortal flesh. That the time in which Jesus was at his weakest, there was a centurion there to declare when he saw how Jesus died, surely this man was the son of God. And so, again, Jesus took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory. Baptism is a death and a renunciation of all those faded glories promised by sin, the flesh, and the devil. It's a proclamation of Jesus' victory over sin and death, that the cross is not a a demonstration of the powers of this world over the weak, but a symbol of life and glory, not of shame. So that through him, we who receive baptism um, are receiving baptism not merely of water, but of the Holy Spirit and of power to equip us to be, again, um, his disciples in the world. And so this Epiphany season, this particular Sunday, throughout these Sundays in which we reflect on the revelations of God's glory through mortal flesh, glory to Jesus Christ our Lord, who took on our mortal flesh to reveal his glory, that he might bring us out of darkness and into his own marvelous and glorious light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.